enough for us to uh, crave the approval and recognition of others. It is evident in the increasing number of children and teenagers who aspire to be YouTubers. Most of, of you, when you were asked when you were a kid, did not tell your parents that you wanted to be a YouTuber when you grew up. And in fact, I had to Google what a YouTuber was. <laughs> but this, uh, this uh, ability to put yourself before an audience and have people uh, like what you do, right? Approve of you, give you hearts and thumbs up and tell you uh, that you're uh, beautiful or that you uh, are doing well or, you've, or you're smart or you've accomplished something. Uh, these are natural tendencies that are built within us. To We want the approval of our parents. We want the approval of our family and, and loved ones and friends. And That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if we exclusively seek the approval or the praise of others, we are in danger of missing um, the most important thing, which is uh, seeking the glory that comes from God alone. Uh, in our text this morning, Jesus be- ends his uh, uh, defensive trial case against the Jews and their accusations that he has made himself to be equal with the Father. And he c- brings uh, this uh, discourse to an end, to a close. And in the process, he does some startling things by uh, exposing the root of unbelief. And in that way, we get a master class in what unbelief is. And if we take Jesus' statements and we begin to work backwards from unbelief, we can discern uh, just exactly what belief is, what God is calling us to uh, in, in our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, These um, uh, are woven in the fabric of the end of his discourse as he levels his own accusations, although he says they're not mine, they come from Moses. Uh, For the very scriptures that the Jews had had been such strong proponents of uh, are the very scriptures that testified to who Jesus was, and they should have seen that, they should have seen that. Um, so there are, there are two interrelated ways that unbelief develops. And both of them can be traced back to a lack of love for God. And how that lack of love manifests itself is the very root of unbelief. And it's, it's surprising. So this morning, as you are able, please stand with me as we read together from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 5, and we'll begin our reading this morning at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the sending of your Son. May our hearts be inclined to love you this morning. May we not reject Jesus as the one from the Father, full of grace and truth, who has shown your very glory shining in his face. May we be those who come and receive him by faith. And to that end, Father, may you banish our love for the praise of men and seeking the glory that comes from men. And may our hearts be inclined to seek the glory that comes only from you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. You may be seated. Closing arguments are the last statements made by a lawyer in a court case after all the evidence has been presented and the witnesses have been brought forward and they have testified. And these important last few minutes for the lawyer to uh, end his uh, trial with something that will stick in the mind of the juror and the the jury and the judge something memorable something that will stay with them as they're making their judgments and that's exactly what Jesus is doing and this in these few verses he is uh, Jesus has been placed in the dock he is under scrutiny for the things that he has done for the things that he has said, for making himself equal with the Father. And the Jews are accusing him of blasphemy, which of course is a, 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 a capital offense. And Jesus has brought out his witnesses. We looked last week at the, at the witnesses that Jesus brought forward through the Father by the Spirit of his word and his work. Those things testify to the truthfulness of Jesus' statement. I am working even as my Father is working until now. Jesus made Himself equal with the Father because He is equal with the Father. And Jesus sets this whole thing up as a master class in unbelief. But as it unfolds, it's clear that this drama is actually intended to lead Jesus to His desired goal, which is the cross. Lest we lose the forest for the trees, let us remember that the event that Jesus entered this conflict with was a healing. A healing done on the Sabbath, sure. A healing done in such a manner that it upset the traditions that the rabbis had set. That no one should carry a burden on the Sabbath. Was the man breaking the Sabbath? It's not clear that he was. But Jesus uses that moment to teach not only his disciples and us something of who he is, his very nature, but to provoke a response from the Jews. And he he responds to their uh, charge of blasphemy by doubling down. I am equal with the Father. What the Father does, I do. And I have seen and heard from him, I have been sent to accomplish. And he makes explicit, self-consciously so, that he is 
equal with the Father. And to truly honor God the Father is to honor the Son. And to honor the Son is to accept the Son as from the Father. You cannot honor God the Father while at the same time rejecting His Son whom He sent to save the world. He then had produced witnesses and and then Jesus brings this discourse in chapter 5 to a close with the theme of glory. And this is, is sort of striking. And to understand this text, I want to ask a, a series of three questions that will help us to see the significance of Jesus' closing statements. I want to I ask, where does unbelief come from? And then what does unbelief have to do with the law? And then finally, what is the glory we should seek from God. So first, where does unbelief come from? If you have been a Christian for any length of time, Jesus' statement in verse 41 can be startling. I do not receive glory from people. Where do you receive it from? Why would you say such a thing? Why is Jesus drawing our attention to the fact that he does not come, he did not come to receive glory from people? Is he saying that he does not need glory from man? As if to say, what you think of me is not important. Jesus is saying, I don't base my ministry on whether or not you approve of me. It's not about likes and follows for Jesus. At the end of Jesus' ministry, by all accounts, it would not be considered successful. He has 11 people who are following him and a a group surrounding them, and most of them abandon him at the hour of his greatest need. Jesus uh, does not need the approval, the glory that comes from men. He did not come for that purpose. One cryptic statement is followed by another. What does Jesus mean when he claims the, the Jews don't have the love of Of God in them. Does he mean God doesn't love them? That can't be. And they wouldn't even receive it if he said it. They're the covenant people of God. They've been entrusted as stewards of the oracles and the covenants and promises. They are the ones that even when God sold them in exile, still loved them and brought them back. Like a father disciplining a son. It can't be that God doesn't love them. So what does Jesus mean? He means that they don't love God. Even this would seem preposterous to them. How can it be when they have so scrupulously guarded the keeping of the law? What else is that but love of God? Zeal for righteousness. They have seen themselves to be Evidence of their love for God. But Jesus is trying to correct this false self-assessment by showing them that the true nature of their relationship with God. Because what to them seemed like love and devotion was actually an outright rejection of God. I.e., they do not have the love of God in them. And the reason is that they do not receive Jesus. When someone comes in someone else's name. They come with their authority. They come because they have uh, that person's blessing. Jesus comes in the name of the Father and they don't receive Jesus. 
And how are they receiving the Father? And Jesus is saying that the Jews, when they rejected Him, they have rejected the Father. And of course, their fathers had cultivated a longing for, a yearning after the Christ who was to come. These people uh, were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for the Christ to come. And all their hopes for national renewal and personal vindication revolved around Christ. So why, when He came in the Father's name, did they not receive Him? And Jesus says, it's because they were too busy receiving one who came in His own name. They were too busy receiving glory from each other. Notice in verse 44, the very center of this. How can you believe? This is a rhetorical question. How can you believe in me? And by belief, he means come to me and receive me. How can you come to me and receive me by faith when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You see how Jesus equates receiving with believing. And this is because they are too busy receiving glory from one another. Have you ever been a part of a group that's self-congratulatory? They seem only to exist to pat one another on the back and, and to stroke each other's egos. Maybe this only happens to men's, men in groups, but, but I think not. These groups, they never challenge each other because if you were to enter in and challenge one person, it would be like challenging yourself. So you keep, all the group exists for us to keep the status quo. Don't rock the boat. And you pat each other on the back. It's a good old boys club. The problem with these kinds of groups is that they can become an echo chamber where members only hear their own opinions and ideas. And they never are exposed to new perspective or ways of thinking. More importantly, these groups never grow. They have stagnated at the same level of maturity. And unless someone new comes along to upset the balance, they will remain that way. It usually takes an outsider with some bravado, some gravitas, right, and a lot of boldness and courage to confront groups that are entrenched in that way of thinking. But often, when someone new does come around speaking challenging things and upsetting the status quo, the group's reaction can be one of two responses. Acceptance, which would lead to change, or rejection, leading often to violent expulsion of a virus from the group, right? You make that newcomer a scapegoat, and you place all your blame on him. The Jews were like this in Jesus' day. They had settled into a self-congratulatory mode of receiving glory from one another. And it's easy to see how this would keep them from believing or receiving Christ. Jesus came for the very purpose of manifesting the glory of God. But now, but not how the Jews wanted it. For ultimately, Jesus came to die. We get, we get a glimpse of this mentality in the thinking of Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus, uh, Matthew says this, From that time, 
Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you love the praise of men. You are seeking the glory that comes from men. And your heart, your mind is not set on heavenly things. Get behind me, Satan, because I am going to the cross. Setting your mind on the things of man is like seeking the glory or praise of men. Being so preoccupied with how things are, we miss the radical call Jesus gives when he bids us to follow him. Continuing, just verses later. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Not only does this heart disposition keep us from believing in Jesus, it also keeps us from following Him. Every compromise we make in the Christian life can be traced back to this. We love the praise that comes from men more than the praise that comes from God. What will my friends think of my radical commitment to follow Christ? Everyone listens to this music and watches these movies and talks like this. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be different. I want to fit in. Countercultures might think of countercultures like LGBTQ or, or some community like that. That's not a counterculture. There are only two cultures in the world. Those who love God and follow Christ and those who hate Him. And because they hate Him, they love death. Those are the only two cultures. And if you want to live counterculture from this culture that loves death, then you must seek the glory that comes from God alone and not the praise of men. Where Christians have the most trouble is when they try to do both. They try to straddle following Christ, all while cleverly disguising to the world that they are doing so. This may have been easier to do in an American culture that was culturally Christian. You didn't have to work as hard, but it it is very costly now as a baker to refuse to bake the cake. Or as a photographer, to refuse to photograph the wedding. It may cost you your livelihood and persecution. Maybe you'll get doxxed online and trolled until your reputation is destroyed. It may not be dragging you out of your home and imprisoning you and torturing you, but it is costly. It is still persecution. And we should be prepared to face it. I was appalled that at some of the compromises that Christians and churches made during COVID, much of which can be traced back to seeking the praise of men. 
Believing in Christ entails rejecting the praise of men. But before we return to ask, what is the, the positive of that? What does it look like for us to seek the glory that comes from the only God? We need to find out why it's not Jesus who accuses the Jews of this unbelief, but Moses. So the, th- the second question is, what does unbelief have to do with the law? Why does Jesus immediately turn and say, it's not me that accuses you, but Moses? If Christ was predicted and anticipated in the Scriptures, which the Jews search daily so that they can have life, why did they not recognize, why did they not receive Jesus as the Christ? Remember that it was the Scriptures that Jesus marshaled to bear witness to the truth of His claim to be equal with the Father. And now those same Scriptures will stand up in accusation against the Jews for their failure to receive, that is, believe in Him. And it seems what Jesus is saying is there is a way of reading the Scripture that misses the entire point. Here, Jesus' discussion takes us into the very nature of the giving of the law. What was the intent behind the law? Why did God give them the law? Was it something that needed to be kept in order for them to secure God's favor? Was their law-keeping something that earned them a place in the kingdom of God? What was God's intention behind giving the law? After the exile of Israel and Babylon, if you've been been with, with us since last September, you'll know we've been going through in our Sunday school hour, Ezra and Nehemiah. When the people of God returned to the land after having been sold into exile because of their idolatry, because of their failure to keep the Sabbath, because of their failure to be covenant keepers, to keep the law. And a cursory reading through those books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll discover the leaders made significant efforts to ensure that Israel never repeated the same things that led them to exile. In fact, during that that dark period when God did not send prophets to speak to Israel, the period between Malachi and and the sending of John the Baptist was a a, a time of fence-building. The rabbis spent considerable energy to theologize about the minutiae of the law. They reasoned that if it was transgression of the law that led them into exile, then strict adherence would garner the Lord's favor. And so they went one step beyond the law in order to keep the law. If the law required only 40 lashings as a punishment, then they would only do 39 so as never to transgress that law. And over and over again on all the different laws that God had given, they built boundaries around them. So that when a man who has been lame for 38 years laying on a mat, hoping for someone to let him in the water to be healed. And Jesus comes along on the Sabbath and heals him. And he heals him by telling him, stand up, take up your bed and walk. And the man obeys and he is immediately healed. And carrying his bed, praising God, no doubt, the Jews see him and they don't see the healing. They don't see the life restored. They don't see the purpose, the very purpose of the Sabbath, which was to recreate man in rest. 
all they see is that he broke one of their fences. He built a fence so the people would not break the Sabbath. And they broke the fence. He didn't break the Sabbath. But they said, you can't carry a burden out of your house. Did he break the Sabbath? It is this confrontation that Jesus points out that they had severely missed the point of the law. And of course, it wouldn't be clear to the disciples, to the apostles, to the church, till much later in their confrontation with when the Gentiles begin to come into the church. And the Jews were upset by this. And they, they insisted that they become followers of Moses as well. It's good that you follow Christ, but you must be circumcised and keep the law. And the apostles said, no, that, that is not the case. And Paul, I don't have time, of course, to give you all the details of his argument in Galatians, but I, I, want, to, I want to show you this. One of the points that Paul is writing Galatians is, is to, to address this very issue. What is the intent of the law? Why was it given? Was it so that the people of God would earn the favor of God? Did the law come before or after the promises given to Abraham? In other words, Abraham or his children did not earn the promise by keeping the law. No, they received the promise by faith. In Galatians 3.15, Paul says this, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place by, through angels by an intermediary. The promise was given to an offspring, namely Christ. And the law was added as boundaries to keep the people of God until the offspring would come. Paul is deriving all this from Moses. The law was not something given so that the people of God could earn the promise already given to Abraham. But, the, but so the people of God would remain the people of God until they could receive the promise. Jesus was the promise. Now we can connect Jesus' statement that Moses is their accuser back to their desire to receive glory from men. Imagine for a moment with me that Jesus came and he fit himself to a particular rabbinic school. And he began to distinguish himself according to that school. And he taught what they taught and he practiced it perfectly. What would he receive? Glory from men, right? Wow, this guy is a phenomenal teacher. He actually does what he says. And Jesus could actually do it. But that's not... That wasn't the point. That wasn't what he was 
doing. He came, however, and he upset the delicate balance of power they had worked so hard to create by overthrowing their traditions and teaching that the true meaning of the law, which of course was to point to him. The whole purpose, the goal of the law was Jesus Christ. And you might think at this point, phew, we are safe. We're not Jews. We're safe from this accusation. This is not for us. But but what else is it when you fail to see Christ in the Old Testament? What if you believe like the dispensationals do that that was for Israel but has nothing to do with us? What if you believe like popular evangelical pastors like Andy Stanley who said in In 2018, in a sermon, Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the value systems depicted in the story of ancient Israel. Andy Stanley missed Jesus Christ. He missed him in the Old Testament. He missed that every single page was pointing to Jesus Christ. You cannot have the beginning of the story. You cannot have the end of the story without the beginning. Would not Jesus come and speak the same word to these false ideas? I do not accuse you, but Moses does. Does not Jesus say that if you do not believe Moses' writing, how will you then believe the words of Christ? He does. And by that, he overthrows any rejection of the writing of Moses' belonging to another dispensation that has no meaning for us today. You You cannot engage with the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament. So there is a a particular reading of the Old Testament that scriptures, which we may call Christocentric, that form a necessary way for us to read it. Jesus is the very center of the Old Testament. We cannot read it in any other way and come out believing that Jesus is the Christ. So in your pursuit of Christ, add Leviticus to your list and read it and see him in the sacrifices and the priesthood. And open up numbers and see that the rock that Israel drank from in the wilderness was Christ. So also was the bread from heaven and the bronze serpent and on and on. Jesus Christ is a crimson thread that begins in the promise that he will send a seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. All the way to that promise that I will give you a son who will sit on your throne forever and ever. And I will give him a kingdom that will never end. All of those developments run from the very beginning to the end and tell us one story. Jesus is the Christ. If the praise of men and a superficial reading of Scripture keeps us from receiving and believing in Christ, then what is the right response? The right response is seen clearly when we work backwards, starting at the bottom of verse 44. 
If the root of unbelief is seeking the glory of men, then the root of belief is seeking the glory that comes from God. And then the root of belief is, how do we do this? By, of course, coming and receiving and believing in Jesus. All these direct us to the right way to seek the glory that comes from the only God. The same action that privileged the glory of men, when done in reverse, result in seeking the glory of God. It begins first with a recognition that on every page of Scripture, Christ is, is bursting off of it. It also, it also means that our reading must also get certain things right. Namely, the indicatives and imperatives. Legalism does what the Jews did and misses the Christ who was the end of the law. I mean, end as in the goal or the purpose that the law was given in the first place. Legalism misses this goal and it flips it on its head by misunderstanding the gospel's indicative. By making the believer's obedience the key to eternal life. Obedience is important, but it must flow from gratitude for salvation freely given to to you in Christ. To seek the glory from God is to receive Jesus as the Son from the Father who is full of grace and truth. To receive Christ is to rest in Him alone for your salvation. We receive Christ when we come to Him by faith. When we cast aside, we forsake the glory that comes from men by dying. And then when through Christ we are raised to newness of life, we set our minds on the things above where Christ is. Then we are enabled to seek the glory that comes from the only God by daily putting off the old man and putting on Christ. And I hope by now it is clear that this is not a uniquely Jewish problem. This is an us problem. This is a me problem. We don't seek the glory of God because we don't want to give up the praise of men. We also don't want to follow Jesus where he calls us to follow him. For we know that the path he treaded led him to the cross. And we, like Satan, seek glory in our own ways, easy ways that promise quick glory at a cheap price. But the true path of glory lies in the resurrection. And you can't have resurrection unless you first die. To seek the glory of God is to come and receive Christ, resting in Him alone by faith as He's freely offered you to the gospel and forsaking the praise of men to follow Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we give You thanks for the glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And we behold it as our hearts are open to You this morning. We ask, Father, for a renewed sense of strength by your Holy Spirit to forsake the praise of men, to die daily to ourselves and to seek Christ. May our hearts be open to see him on every page in Scripture, testifying to the glory that comes from the only God. May that be our sole pursuit in this life. And Father, may our hearts be turned towards you so that the love and praise of men is not something we desire, but that our, our greatest, our chief desire is to seek your glory and yours alone. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.